Welcome to the Chasing Presence podcast, co-hosted by Santi and Mike. This is a space where we share our insights for how to live a more spiritually aligned life. Join us on our journey to expand consciousness, live with purpose, and awaken to our true nature. Welcome, everyone, to the Chasing Presence podcast. Today, we have the honor of hosting Matt Hanley. Matt was born and raised in Sydney, but is now based in Malibu. He was once a lawyer, but now splits his time between making and playing music as one half of DJ duo Yolanda Be Cool, working on releasing others, other people's music as A&R director for the record label Sweat It Out and teaching people Vedic meditation. He also loves surfing. He learned Vedic meditation in 2013, not after... Not long after receiving his mantra, he became an eager advocate and began setting in place the steps and undertaking the studies necessary to enable him to become an initiator for Vedic meditation. In the present, he is a graduate of Vedic meditation initiator training via his teacher and Vedic master, Tom Knowles, and can't wait to share this gift with anyone who is interested. He believes that Vedic meditation can heal the world and is here to play his part in doing so. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. It is our pleasure. So can you give us, before we get into the the thick of things, can you just give us a bit of a, a detailed background about how your life has been, how your upbringing was, and how all the events of your life culminated into leading you into where you are right now? Sure. Um, yeah, like you said, I mean, you summed it up very well, but, um, I was born in Sydney, um, you know, had a pretty normal upbringing, um, you know, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, um, love surfing, love sport. Um, I guess I left, you know, high school and studied law, probably thought I'd be a lawyer, but spent two years as a lawyer and, um, decided it wasn't really for me, took a year off, went to Brazil. Um, by that point, I was DJing. So I got back from Brazil and didn't really have any money, but was DJing a bit. And then my friend who I used to go running with pulled out like a little ad from the garbage bin, actually, because he was cutting out newspaper like job jobs for um, one of his friends who was also a lawyer. It's like, oh, you might like this job. And it was a job being the lawyer for a record label. So as fate would have it, I think um, I took this job being a lawyer for a record label, which essentially got me into the music industry more than just DJing in bars and stuff. Um, and so I did that for about four years. Um, and in that time, started making music and started a record label within the record label, which is called Sweat It Out, which is what I still run today with some other people. And, um, yeah, started that with a guy by the name of Ajax, who was my hero um, and a lot of people's hero at the time. You know, he was Australia's number one DJ. <clears throat> and, yeah, so did that, was still being the lawyer. Then Central Station Records, who was who I worked for, um, they went into liquidation and so basically everyone lost their jobs and I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a lawyer, you know, and then Ajax and I were like, well, no one cares about Sweat It Out. Why don't we just take it on for ourselves? So 
we actually didn't own the label prior to that, but then we were able to, I think we put in $1,000 each and got ownership of the label with Jamie, who's still, he was my boss, but now he's my business partner. And so, yeah, it was a, a label that we'd run and we'd sort of meet uh, once a month, you know, in a cafe in Bondi and talk about our art budget of $200. Um, so it was pretty much like an outlet to release music that Ajax loved and I was sort of more like his, I guess, the guy doing the work. Um, but at the same time I was making music and, um, you know, my whole, and Andy, my DJ partner, our whole goal was just to impress him with the music we made. Um, and anyway, so eventually we made a song that um, started doing quite well. And then eventually, you know, it ended up kind of being number one around the world. Um, and that, well, it changed my life for sure because it meant I didn't need to, it meant I never thought about being a lawyer again, that's for sure. And and it enabled myself and Andy to start travelling the world and um, money, um, you know, travelling, touring DJs. And it also put money into the record label so we could start affording to hire people and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I think, like, I had a really um, great life at this point, you know, and I had a long-term girlfriend and, you know, because of the DJing, we started touring quite a lot and obviously that puts quite a bit of pressure on relationships and lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. So eventually that girl and I broke up after quite a long time and then about a month later, Ajax was hit by a truck and um, died. And, you know, under, essentially, you know, he chose to do that. Um, and so that was like a moment in my life that I'd never experienced before. You know, I'd, I'd lost a really good friend a few years before that, but never under the same circumstances. And to lose like a hero um, was very, you know, tough for not just myself, but a lot of people in the music industry in Australia, because definitely I think, um, you know, people said to me, wow, if he can't take it, how, how can I, you know? Um, and so I, I was never one to be suicidal myself, but I was definitely like down, you know, and it took quite a bit of time to get back up <clears throat> And part of getting back up was my ex-girlfriend about probably a year after everything happened, she said to me, uh, why don't you work on yourself, you know? And um, I think probably if she said that before Ajax passing, I probably would have said, you know, well, I don't need to work on myself, I'm fine. But I think after all of that, I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe I do need to work on myself, you know, like. Maybe there's things I could do better. Maybe I could be more loving and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and so as it happened, again, fate, um, she said, well, and she wasn't even a meditator herself, but she said, why don't you um, go and check this out? This guy's giving an intro talk on meditation tonight. And it was a guy initiated by the name of Gary Goro, who also learned under Tom Knowles and I watched his introductory video online. I was like, wow, this sounds amazing. You know, all the benefits of meditation and everything. And I went to the intro talk and I signed up straight away, um, did the course basically the next day. And, um, yeah, pretty much ultimately changed the course of my life, you know, from um, 
just the the way I experienced life after meditation. I felt like, you know, I was a, a DJ traveling the world and partying and and probably not living so consciously. Um, and, you know, with the meditation, it, it, you know, and and I think like a lot of definitely Australian guys, you know, growing up in Australia, we, um, the, the culture, and I think it's changing definitely, but the culture when I was like a teenager and on was like, it was, it was cool to forget how you got home, you know, like that, what, that was like a, oh man, I have such a big night. I can't remember getting home, you know, and that was something that wasn't frowned upon. It was like, oh, good on you, man. That's a cool night. And so definitely having grown up with that kind of mentality and then um, learning to meditate, which is exactly the opposite. It's like about expanding your consciousness rather than, you know, um, restricting it which essentially is ultimately what you know drinking etc does um and so that like you know just became one of those things that I could feel every time I did it my consciousness going like this like this like this and um I was I was already a pretty happy person but I could see a lot of people not so happy around me and I was like wow these people need this you know so pretty quickly I became like a a loudspeaker for the benefits of um, meditation, not always um, probably in the way that we're now, I understand um, you should express that because, you know, from the Vedic perspective, um, we talk about worthy inquiry, you know, someone wanting to know. And I think quite often I'd be like, oh, you got to do this. And, you know, if someone's not ready, they're not ready. So I probably learned that the harder way. Um, even paying for people to learn to meditate when ultimately, you know, if they don't actually want to learn themselves, they won't take the skill and actually utilise it, um, you know, in the same way that if you said to someone, you you know, you'd really benefit from going to the gym and, and they don't want to go to the gym but you buy them a membership, they're not going to go to the gym and they're not going to get the benefit. So, um, yeah, that's basically uh, when I was like I, I need to become a teacher um, you know, like I can see what this can do for people. And um, basically I, as you said, started um, setting and start setting, started taking the steps necessary to become a teacher. And yeah, I graduated in 2022 and yeah, it really is a gift that I'm very passionate about being able to give to people. So yeah, I don't know if that was the answer to your question but I think that's that's a bit of a summary of how I got to where I am you know I mean that answered that question with flying colors um I so when you when when you uh when your first or when that relationship ended how long between that relationship ending and the tragedy of Ajax did both of those events happen uh so that and I, I also had a leg operation because I've had um, blood clots in my leg. I used to run a lot. And anyway, ultimately, you know, the Vedic perspective is blood clots is probably some kind of blockage mentally, you know, because and so I was quite aware that, you know, I wasn't like you shouldn't be getting blood clots. Um, so I had to do some operations. Um, but, yeah, so to answer your question, I had the operation where I couldn't walk for quite a while broke up with the girlfriend Ajax all within a month. So it was like a lot of um, heavy stuff, you know, in, in a row. Um, and, you know, 
of with the blood clots, my legs totally fine now. I don't. I used to have to take a blood thinner and all that, but with the meditation and the the clean, healthy living, I think it's like, yeah, you know, your body responds. But yeah, it was it was about a month. It was a lot, it definitely, and it definitely, um, you know, it was pretty um shaken by it for a while. I remember not leaving the house for a couple of weeks on end, and yeah, that kind of stuff. I'm sorry you had to go through that, but I imagine. So, how long after that experience did you learn Vedic meditation? After both of those events happened that month. Yeah, it was probably about a year. You know, and um, the the beauty of perspective is obviously, you know, that we can like with time, as we get a greater perspective. And so, what was tragedy at that time was like obviously you know for the direction of where my life's gone it was a a thing that happened in a good way you know um so you know that the girl that I was with were now friends and I you know when I was on my um initiator training and I was halfway through I, I actually had this crazy moment where you know you do these things called rounds which take about an hour and when we're in high rounds, you do about 14 a day and it's like a pretty intense experience waking up at 3.34 in the morning and going through till midnight. And um, I was sitting outside in Sedona where we did the course with just a blanket of stars under me and I was doing this breathing exercise and I was thinking, wow, how did I get to this point in my life where I'm, you know, 42 years old and somewhere in America, out under the stars, feeding rice to a dead guru. And, you know, I was like, what what happened? And and it's like, well, what happened? You know, you had that breakup and then you had your friend die. And I had this moment of gratitude for all these, like, things that at the time was so tragic but, you know, led me to this place that I was at that, was seemingly pretty inexplicable but you know when when you look back and have that perspective it all made sense and I sent her a message the next day just saying hey I just want you to know that thanks to you telling me I needed to work on myself I'm like halfway through graduating as a initiator and you know she wrote back some really nice things and said I really want you to teach me when you're finished um so yeah it was it was a good exchange and you know Ajax's parents, who I've remained um, really close with in his family, they were, like, so supportive of the Baseline Happiness Project, you know, and the idea that um, the people in people in the music industry suffer a lot, you know, and they were like, wow, I wish we had this around when for Adrian. Um, but, you know, as a result of his, our loss of him, hopefully we can prevent the loss of many others. So... Yeah, it's sort of like one of those things where bad things ultimately you can flip the perspective on them and see what good that can come out of them. Yeah, it's like those those adverse experiences in hindsight always teach us something about ourselves that we absolutely had to learn. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how things work out that way, um, which is why if you can get comfortable experiencing negative emotions, then when you're actually in the midst of it, it becomes a lot easier to actually have gratitude for it and accept, but it's something that is, is very hard to learn that generally only an expanded consciousness can, 
deal with, right? Uh, which is why Vedic meditation is is so important. And I'm very grateful that I got exposed to it as well. Um, so I kind of want to circle back to the point in your life when we know Speak Americano blew up. Um, there's this there's this concept of people who become successful where it's almost like when your dreams come true, you have this, you have this high, obviously that does not last forever. Uh, and I kind of just want to understand how that was in, in your experience. What was going through your body when, you know, you realized that all your dreams came true and you didn't have to become a lawyer again. And did that, did that feeling eventually end and, kind of end up leaving you empty in a way. I just want to understand how your mind was working. I know this was before Vedic meditation, but you know, a lot of people become successful and they realize that the external wealth is not it, that there's something missing. So how was that for you? You broke up for a little bit, but I think I, I got the um, gist of it. Well, it's funny because, you know, it definitely sounds like that was my dream to, have a worldwide number one, but it actually wasn't. So it was actually kind of, it was very surreal and very awkward in the same way because at the same time, because on the one hand, yeah, we were traveling the world and and getting paid, you know, more money than we ever thought we would. And um, But on the other hand, we were like underground house music producers who had aspirations of playing it really cool underground nightclubs with all our like favorite underground DJs and then all of a sudden it was like we jumped right over the top of them onto these way bigger stages than we ever thought about but you know the the downside of that was because our we had such a big you know pop song people expected us to be pop kind of DJs and that's not exactly what we are or producers so it was actually a weird one where we like, look, you know, I wasn't a meditator when it all happened. And I think if I was, I would have had a lot more gratitude for how and why it had all happened. But because it happened at a time when I didn't have that um, ability to take a step back and I was more, you know, in the moment, like we talk about when we meditate, um, you know, it's like, the analogy is there's the ocean and the wave, right? And the wave is turbulent and tumultuous and a lot going on, but the wave is not connected to the bottom of the ocean. It is the bottom of the ocean. And, you know, it's not that you can't say the bottom of the ocean is the wave and the wave. They're, they're both the same thing, but they're a very different experience. And so when it all happened, I was definitely experiencing it from the top of the wave. Whereas now I feel I experience everything a lot more from the bottom of the ocean where I would have been like, oh, wow, you know, looking at the wave up to, oh, this is cool. This is interesting. Like, you know, here we are. But because we were like, oh, this is so weird. Like, and, and so it was, kind of, we had mixed emotions about it, to be honest. Um, and, you know, for years we didn't play the song in our DJ sets and, and disappointed lots of people. Um, probably as a result um so yeah it was it was definitely and and then it's actually taken us it took us quite a few years to rebuild the profile that we wanted rather than a profile based on you know this one hit song because 
no one really wants to be that kind of, you know, sure you could back it up with more, but that was never really our goal. Our goal was to be respected, cool underground DJs that could make crossover songs, but not, <clears throat> you know, at the time it was like David Guetta and Pitbull and us. And and that was like not where our heroes were. So yeah, it was a, it was a mixed emotions with how it all played out. Um, obviously, again with retrospect, amazing, um, and you know had incredible experiences, and and it really did set up everything for everything else that's happened. So yeah, it is what it is. You just described how you that you actually didn't want to become pop stars. What you really wanted was to become underground DJs. And when it all happened, it was actually contrary to what you wanted, which was actually not what most people are looking for. I feel like a lot of people that get into the music industry, that get into this, you know, I, I will say a lot of them do it because they enjoy the process of music making, but I feel like a lot of people do it for uh, you know, the promise of external wealth and fame and, and whatnot. So I'm curious, since you're the A&R director and co-founder of Sweated Out Records, that you get a lot of people coming to your label asking to get signed. And what would you say is the, what, like the most common red flag or like mindset that you see with people that are trying to get on your record? Do you think a lot of people are just doing this for the, for the fame? Or do you think that is kind of a stereotype in the music industry that isn't uh, as prevalent as people think. Yeah, I think like um, to be successful, you've kind of, you can't, I, I don't think doing it for the fame will work out, you know, like may, maybe you'll have short-term success, but I think to have any kind of meaningful long-term career, which obviously should be the goal, you've kind of got to have integrity and you've got to have like, you know, your your own direction because if you're chasing someone else's direction because it's hot right now, then, of course, you're always going to be behind the eight ball and you're never going to um, get the actual success, you know. So I'd say um, out of all the artists that we've worked with, the ones that are the most successful are the ones that are very... Um, clear in their direction and where they want to go and, and how they want to get there you know from from like every every component of the you know ultimately what is a business um so yeah i i i think um people getting in it for fame probably aren't going to last very long um you know and a lot of people i know that have been successful i think fame would be very close to the bottom of their motivations so um, so when it comes to expanding your consciousness and, you know, doing Vedic meditation twice a day, what is it about expanding your consciousness? I mean, I, I understand this, but for other people who, you know, may be a little bit confused about how meditation can help with creativity, what is it about meditating twice daily for an extended period of time that is going to, you know, free up your energy and allow you to actually be more creative or allow the creative force to flow through you as some people say and also how have you how have you seen meditation affect your ability to be creative with Yolanda be cool um yes very, very good question um so 
the analogy that I like to give for how meditation works and how it can free up space for creativity is like if you think about, you know, your work desk, um, let's just say you come home and you're ready to work and there's coffee everywhere, you know, there's like food and there's like books and there's everything scattered all over your desk and there's hardly a place for you to put down your laptop and start working, whatever work that may be. Before you're going to be able to do that work, you know, you're going to need to pick up all the coffee cups and move them out of the way and take all the plates and old food and put them in back in the kitchen or blah, 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 you know, and put all the books away and tidy up the papers and then finally open up your laptop and be able to work. And the way that I see meditation working is we have all these things floating around in our mind that, you know, could distract us from what's actually most relevant. And so what we do when we meditate is we take the time to let everything settle down and, you know, essentially move all those things that are irrelevant out of the way. And then what comes through when we open our eyes again is always going to be the most relevant next thing to do. And obviously if we're in a creative um, mode and creative space, that's going to be the most creative thing we can do, right? So if we've got like, you know, a lot of artists will say, oh, you know, I, I need to be high to do something. And really what that highness is, it's actually creating the space for them to to be able to do it. But they, they don't need to be high to do it. What they actually need to do is just create the space. And so by taking the time to meditate, they're actually you know, to use the analogy, moving all the food and coffee mugs, et cetera, out of the way to enable them to then get into the job. And obviously the beauty of this is that when you do it twice a day every day, it becomes more and more accessible all the time as opposed to, you know, someone who needs to be in a certain state of mind. It's like, well, you carry that state of mind with you 24-7. And so, you know, accessing the creative flow is is a lot easier and a lot more um, accessible. So, yeah, I'd say that's probably what meditation, why meditation is so great for creativity. Um, it's not that it makes you more create creative, essentially. It's just that it clears the space for the creativity that you have to come through. You know, obviously, if you've got a really cluttered mind, then all that clutter in the same way that all the food and drinks, et cetera, is in the way, all that clutter is going to be blocking what's actually otherwise there for you, you know, ready and ready to go, but just blocked. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably what meditation does in terms of what it's done for me. I think <clears throat> ultimately, you know, it gives you, because you're heightening all your senses every time you meditate, you know, again, because you're clearing out all the blockages that would stop things, um, you just have a, a more innate um, intuition of what's right and, and you know, what to go with at any one time. And um, I feel it makes you more decisive. You know, you become more, like, in tune with, yep, that's that's the right, you know, kick drum for this track or um, et cetera, et cetera. Awesome. So, yeah. So I'd, I'd say that's it sounds that. like that is the philosophical explanation for what meditation can do for our creativity and um, for improving our lives. I know that there's scientific benefits to this. And generally when there's philosophical 
um, merits and scientific benefits. That is the uh, that is the culmination of something that can really help the population. So scientifically, over time, what is happening when you do Vedic meditation or when you reach that transcendental state 20 minutes twice daily? Um, well, I'm definitely not a scientist, but um, my understanding of what's happening and, and you know, my experience of what's happening and my, you know, intuition of, of what what's going on is, you know, I truly believe that, like, we're all born, you know, like, pretty much um, with 100% capabilities. And then what happens over time, you know, with beautiful perspective on everything, like a child, you know, when you look at a child, they're looking at everything in wonderment. And that's, how we're born and then what happens is we have events that take place you know from when we're in the womb to right up until now that can create stress and stress is what colors that childlike wonderment that we'd otherwise come with and so over time we build up stress we build up stress and it becomes like um well, it essentially creates those blockages, you know, because rather than see something for how it is, we see something through the lens of someone who's accumulated all this stress, which is now colouring their perception of how things are. Um, so I'm trying to think about how to say that in a scientific way. Um, well... From, from the Indian perspective, they, there's a, there's this idea of sanskara, um, and sanskara is essentially what they say is grooves in the mind, right? And so imagine you didn't have any sanskara, and sanskara is where we get the word scar. But imagine we didn't have any sanskara. So everything flows directly from, you know, perception to our mind. But what happens when we get sanskara, i.e. when we get these stressful events, it creates grooves in the mind which rather than, you know, making the vision or the experience come straight to us, the experience goes through all these grooves and essentially these grooves are like these stress reactors which are saying, you know, like, um, oh, that guy's wearing an orange T-shirt. Remember that last time you saw someone with an orange T-shirt and they pulled out a gun? All of a sudden, you know, that friendly, happy person in an orange T-shirt is going through the groove of someone who last time you saw someone you know they had a gun and so now you're no longer looking at this person in an orange t-shirt thinking oh this is going to be a good experience you're like oh my god you know you don't even know it but you're telling yourself that maybe this guy's got a gun too and so what um meditation does is it unwinds those stresses and therefore smooths out those grooves again so that rather than next time a guy with an orange t-shirt comes and you go through that groove i.e you'd be like oh uh -oh, here comes the guy potentially with a gun again you go back to you know how you were when you're a child and that's just oh wow there's a guy with an orange t-shirt i'm sure this is going to be a great experience that's definitely not a scientific from uh, from what fun. I've learned by listening to your teacher's podcast, I'm I'm a huge fan of Tom Knowles' Vedic Worldview podcast. I listen to it all, like every week. 
from what I understand, yeah, I, it's 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 amazing. Man. Anyone who's watching this, please go, please go listen to that podcast. The the man is is perfectly articulate. Um, the way I understand it is, we have stress triggers that if we are not aware of these stress triggers when they happen, they can get stored in our body and meditation essentially is a way of you know cleaning the grooves or removing the dust off of the light bulb is that like a good way to maybe articulate that yeah i mean the light bulb analogy is an amazing one um and essentially that is again you know when you're born you're a beautiful unimpeded flash of light you know that's got nothing covering it and you can light up the room but as time goes on you get like a little bit of dust from maybe it was your parents yelling at you when you were five and then you get a bit more dust when you didn't get a bike when you were 10 and then when you're 15 you know a girl or boy broke up with you and that disappointed you and all of a sudden by the time you're 20 or 25 your light globe is full of dust and the dust the dust is impeding the light and it's not that the light isn't there it's just it's impeded by all this accumulated so-called dust and so what the meditation does is because you know just by innocently intending to think our mantra what happens is we enable the mind to tell the body that it can go into this deep profound level of level of rest that is scientifically um, studied and proven to be up to five times more restful than sleeping. And when we get to that level of rest, you know, such dynamic rest, what happens is we can start not just, you know, feeling better because we were tired last night or, you know, maybe our boss was mean to us yesterday and, and obviously, you know, we have a good night's sleep. We're no longer worried about that. But when we go into this um, state of rest, it's so much deeper and more profound where I, and that we're able to start getting rid of that dust, meditation by meditation, unwinding that stress and removing that dust so slowly, yeah, the light comes back. In my experience, Vedic meditation has been extremely profound in helping me expand my consciousness and therefore improving my life in ways I never thought possible. So ideally we want most humans or, you know, um, if we want to meet the Maharishi effect, 1% of humans on the planet meditating twice, 20 minutes daily. Right. But then there's this concept of worthy inquiry where the way I understand it is the act of a attempting to convince someone to do something is actually, uh, I guess not violating the, a law of nature where it, where if you're attached to too attached to something happening, then the chances of it actually happening are less likely. Um, but I think the the way the the reason why we started this podcast is because we really want to help our species evolve. Because ideally, that's probably why we're here. You know, uh, life exists to evolve. I believe. Um, and I right now we're we're kind of not in that space. It seems like our species is kind of stagnating a little bit and anything that stagnates nature generally uh, destroys so the the whole concept of worthy inquiry makes a lot of sense but i feel this need to really want to move the needle and 
And I'm just wondering if, because with what you're doing with the baseline happiness project is you are trying to help 1% of the music industry get to this point. I feel like in order to do that, you do have to go out of your way to potentially put yourself in situations to attract people to Vedic meditation. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is how can we get 1% of the population to do this with only worthy inquiry alone and not, you know, putting ourselves in the right situation to potentially attract people to meditation. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and, and like I said, like when I first learned to meditate, I was screaming to anyone that would listen, you know, but um, paying for people who didn't really want to want to learn and ultimately you know, it's like, like I said, it's like buying someone a gym membership who doesn't want to go to the gym. It's like they're, they're not going to get any benefit out of learning. So, yeah, Tom um, talks a lot about um, change coming from within, you know. So the the best thing that we can do to create that worthy inquiry is to be a shining example of someone who has something that other people want, you know. So... <clears throat> If you're walking around and you're always smiling with a genuine smile, not not a, a false smile, or you know, everyone's at the airport and gets told the flight's delayed and they're screaming and throwing their bags, and you're like, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, eventually that worthy inquiry is going to start coming because people are like, what do you do that's so different? Like, how come you weren't upset that the flight got delayed, or you know, um. How come you're okay with the fact that you just got told you lost your job? And so basically, like, um, the best way to get that worthy inquiry is to to quote what Tom says, or I believe what Maharishi said, radiate life for all to enjoy, you know? And the be- the beauty of what you and I and anyone else who is meditating twice a day is doing is it's actually not that hard to radiate life for all to enjoy when you are every day getting your light globe that's, you know, got however much dust that's accumulated up until this point. And every day you're taking a little bit more of the dust off the light globe. And so you are going to be shining more and more. And, you know, a, a really cool thing which I like to tell all my students is the most interesting thing about what we're doing when we're meditating twice a day every day is it gets to a point where we aren't so sure that things are changing for us, but it becomes very apparent for the people around us that things are, you know? And so the analogy for that is like, if I didn't see you, Mike, for a year and you grew your hair, I'd be like, wow, your hair's grown so much. But if I see you every day, I wouldn't notice that the hair's grown. And so basically what what happens with us meditating twice a day is because we're essentially expanding our consciousness and upgrading our decision-making ability every time we close our eyes and meditate, it becomes very apparent to those around us that there's something different about us. And, and, you know, when it's something that's so clear and so positive and, you know, it's not actually that life necessarily goes always in your favour as a meditator and, you know, life's not about just having a a faultless life it's about how do we deal with things when they come up you know we're always going to have relatives that get sick and die and we're always going to have things that don't go our way and 
you know, expectations that don't come about and, you know, anticipation of events that don't work out in our way. So it's not that these things won't happen, but what happens as we meditate more and more is we become more and more okay with however things happen, you know. And so for people who are not with such a tool, eventually there comes a time, you know, and it might come at a time when, you know, for me, I probably wouldn't have gone so willingly to learn meditation if I hadn't had tragedy strike me before, right? And hopefully it doesn't have to come to tragedy for people to want to learn to meditate. But, you know, as as Tom says, people have got to do their own research, you know. So if like eating McDonald's every day and you still look healthy, then you're doing your research. But if you eat McDonald's every day and eventually you have a heart attack, you're going to be like, okay, maybe it's time to change my diet. And I think, you know, the the change that we want to see from people, we have to first um, be that change and then it becomes quite um, appealing to them once they see what's happened to be like, okay, what you're doing has worked out and I've tried everything myself. Now I'm ready to give what you've got to go. So, yeah, I think like... The best way, obviously, you know, it's amazing that you're having this podcast, but, yeah, it's really about, um, I guess, being a shining example of someone who has a tool to make life better than it is otherwise, um, you know, and to make every situation something that can be learned from and adapted to and, um, you know, be, be happy with. So, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, it sounds like to me that the best way to potentially get people to make that worthy inquiry is to is to have ex- people with expanded consciousness or you could say enlightened people to expose themselves to as many people as possible. Essentially, you know, people who are enlightened should go out and speak as much as possible to expose them to as many people as possible so that those people can like feel their energy or like just like witness their presence in a certain way and potentially that will lead to them having a worthy inquiry without that person trying to convince someone of anything. Would you agree? Um, to, to an extent, because I, I think like one of our biggest directives as meditators, as I'm sure you would know, is to follow what we call charm. And, you know, what what is charm? Charm's nature's way of putting us in attunement with, you know, our higher self, our most evolutionary path. And so for some, you know, meditators, it is really charming to go out and, you know, want to want to talk to as many people. But for others, you know, it might be more charming for them to go and sit in a cafe, but then that one person sees them and, you know, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily incumbent upon meditators to have to go out and do that but ultimately I'd say if we are you know in attunement and therefore following charm charm will lead us to the place that's most evolutionary for us and that will lead us into contact with others that are most evolutionary for themselves and for us does that make sense it does it does um, so we're starting to run out of time, but I, I have so many other, more questions I want to ask you. One of them being 
on top of Vedic meditation, are there any other practices that you would recommend that would help people expand their consciousness further? Um, I mean, so what, what I would say is number one, meditate twice a day. And obviously that goes without saying. And then secondly, whatever things that you love to do outside of that, just do them on top of the meditation. Don't try and do them instead of or with. So people will be like, oh, I love having a sauna. Should I meditate in the sauna? And the answer to that is no, not really. You should meditate and then go and enjoy the sauna, you know. Or I love doing yoga. Should I, should I you know, meditate and do stretches at the same time? It's, it's like no, meditate and then do yoga. Um but having said that, what things do I love to do that I feel, you know, helps me expand my consciousness? Number one, listen to Tom's podcast. Um, it's amazing, you know, and, and there's so many of them now that, and, and honestly, you can listen to each one 10 times and you'll get different things out of it each time because each time you come into it probably with a further heightened state of consciousness than the last time and You'll pick up on things that you didn't pick up on last time. So that's like an endless resource of um, opportunity to expand your consciousness. Number two would be to read, you know, books that have to do with it or Vedic texts. Um, I'm happy to suggest many. Um, but, yeah, there's there's a, a lot of reading. I, I love reading before bed. Um, and then for me, I, I've just gotten a cold plunge I don't know if it's expanding my consciousness but I definitely feel like it's helping my state of mind and my health I feel like it's really good for me so I, I I've added that into my kind of daily routine I I also love doing yoga but you know again I do that more because it makes me feel good rather than necessarily it expands my consciousness but having said that obviously how you feel impacts how you do everything else. So if you're feeling good, you're going to continue doing things, you know, in a good way. So I would say that it's not necessary to, but look, I, I think exercise is definitely an important component to um, being a healthy, happy person. So I, I, I would suggest throwing in some exercise. Um, and then, you know, if you are a Vedic meditator, then the next stage is um there's a course um, called Exploring the Veda, um, which which I would highly recommend um, looking into. And then from there, there's a lot more further study that you could do. Um, but yeah, that that's probably a little bit. Read, <laughs> meditate, um, listen to Tom. You know, there's some other podcasts that are cool. Um, Buddha at the Gas Pump, I really like. It's by a um, former transcendental transcendental meditation teacher and um, he interviews what he calls spiritually awakening people so that's really interesting and, and expansive um, yeah and you know hang out with some like-minded people that um, you know you can have really cool chats like we're having a lot of good advice there so I want I want to ask you about let, let's say this was six months or a year after you began meditating when you did have to go through stressful experiences in the moment obviously meditation will help us expand our consciousness so we can do that but what was your process then co like compared to now 
in terms of how you deal with stressful situations in the moment what happens in your body? What's your mindset around it? Like, what's that process of dealing with emotional distress for you? Um, I mean, honestly, I think I've always been really good at dealing with stress. Like, I think anyone that knows me would say I've always been quite relaxed. Probably some people would say too relaxed. So I don't know if, like, I'm a great example of, like, that but I think more for me like what happened is um my perspective became greater so I I could see a lot more of like how and why things happened and be a lot more okay with everything rather than you know get disappointed I used to get disappointed a lot you know like when you release a song you have really high expectations and if things don't go as they as you hope you know, you can you get, you know, sad ultimately. And I used to get pretty sad when I'd release a song and, and it wouldn't get the results that we had, you know. Whereas now um, I, I have zero expectations. I, you know, I'm okay with whatever happens, whether it's good or bad. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's a real direct result from meditation. It's like, you know, that whole idea that, my happiness doesn't come from without anymore. My happiness comes from within and then whatever happens without is more like a really cool bonus rather than um, the make or break um, determination of whether I'm happy or sad or, you know, life's going well or not. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that meditation's done for me is just um, really enhance my perspective on everything. And in terms of relationships, you know, like <clears throat> as a as a um, meditator, I think it, it's really hard to dislike anyone because as your perspective grows, you see a lot more of okay, I see exactly how they're like that. You know, I if I if I had the life that they've had, I would do exactly what they just did. You know, and so it's really cool like even with my family like my parents there's a lot more understanding you know things that I might have sort of gotten really upset about or like actually been angry about now I'm just like well yeah that makes sense I would have probably I would be like that if everything that happened to them happened to me um and so yeah you have a lot more empathy and a lot more love and a lot more compassion and you know, I think before I, I learned to meditate, I, I used to think, you know, I, I would like to think I wouldn't want to, like, murder someone that, you know, did something terrible to my family, whereas now I think for sure I'd be okay. Like, I'd, I'd just be like, well, um, they did that because of everything that's happened to them and I understand it. And obviously it doesn't um, excuse it, but it explains it. Um, so, yeah. Awesome advice. Love that. Um, I don't know where that last bit came from, but yeah, I guess that's the worst thing that could happen. And and if you can still be loving in that situation, then that's obviously uh, a bit of a, a, a strong character, I guess. Yeah, everyone is doing research at the end of the day. You know, it's like it's no one's fault for where they are, but it's everyone's responsibility to create the life that they want and, you know, help others and, and expand their consciousness. Right. I love that line.
It's no one's fault of how they are, but it's their responsibility. Yeah, that's great. I don't think that's, I, I think I got that from somewhere else. I don't know where I got that from. So I, I can't quote it. I can't say that it's mine. Um, so I understand that you recently got engaged. Congratulations, by the way. And <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And how has it been being in a relationship with, with someone who's also working to expand their consciousness? How, how has that been going? Because I, but I understand from talking to you that you and your, you and your partner have been meditating for a while throughout your relationship, correct? Yeah. The, the first night, um, Joe is her name, stayed over, or we spent the night together. Um, the next morning I said, oh, um, yeah, you know, I do this thing, blah, blah, blah. Excuse me. I wasn't a teacher at that point. Um, but she was like, okay, I'll, I'll, um, I'll do it with you. And, and I think I very naughtily, <laughs> um, gave her some kind of word that I thought she could use, although I, I wouldn't advise doing that <laughs> now that I'm a teacher. Um, and, you know, ever since that day, uh, we've meditated together, you know, every morning um, and every afternoon or night when we're together. And um, as soon as I could, I got her an initiator to initiate her properly and get her, you know, her own mantra and all that. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I, um, I don't know if this is, I don't know if it's controversial, but I think uh, it would be difficult for a meditator over a long period of time to go out with a non-meditator for the reason that every time the meditator is closing their eyes and meditating, they're upgrading their consciousness and therefore the experience that they're having in the world each time is slightly different to the one they were having before. And, you know, they're evolving and evolving, whereas the person who's not meditating each day, they're waking up and they're having the same experience or a worse experience because rather than alleviating stress from their body, they're adding stress to their body because that's just the nature of being in this world. And so, you know, one of you is heightening and expanding their consciousness. You know, the light is getting brighter and brighter and brighter and the other is potentially and more than likely um, their light's becoming dimmer and dimmer as they add more and more stress to the physiology. And so what, you know, at the start of the relationship was a um, shared experience may become less and less of a shared experience. You know, as one of you starts to see a blue sky and the other one's still seeing an orange sky, then it's, you know, harder and harder for you to have that shared experience or, or you know, the person seeing the blue sky is like, okay, fine, I'll look at the orange sky, you know. Um, and so... I think like um, having a partner that meditates a beautiful thing because you're both like going, oh, wow, look how the sky is no longer orange. Oh, wow, it's blue. Oh, wow, it's bright blue, you know? And um, so, yeah, um, it's great to have a partner that meditates. One last question before we wrap, th wrap things up. Do you think that – so let's say there's probably a lot of people out there who might not have the money to invest in a Vedic meditation practice, although I highly recommend you do. If you do have the money, it has been very profound for my life and many other people's lives. But I'm assuming reaching the deep state of rest where you can transcend thoughts isn't 
only exclusive to Vedic meditation, that there are other ways of reaching that deep state of rest where, you know, you are not thinking at all. You're, you feel like you're at one with the universe. Your thoughts are completely silent. Obviously we don't want to get rid of our thoughts, but I mean, anyone who understands the concept that thoughts are, are our friends and connecting to the space in between thought is ultimately expand your consciousness can probably practice a certain form of meditation um, themselves without a mantra. Would you agree with that? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that um, from the Vedic perspective, um, cost shouldn't be prohibitive because the way that um, a lot of teachers, including myself, operate is we have a sliding scale. So, you know, if you earn... And, and, and so traditionally, you know, and this um, practice is over 5,000 years old, traditionally you would have to find a guru in the Himalayas and the fee was one week's wage. So, you know, back in the day it was a week's worth of rice. Um, but now it's the same idea. It's like, well, if you earn $100 a week, then that's your fee. If you earn $100,000 a week, then you know, in accordance with the tradition. Now, obviously, we've kind of modified it so there's just, like, blocks, you know, if you earn over this amount, it's this, or under this amount, it's this. But ultimately, if someone was to come to me and say, look, I really want to learn to meditate and I earn $100 a week, I would say, let's go, $100, fine. You only have 50 now, pay me 50 next week, you know, or whatever, pay me 50 in a month. But so I think I would never want money to be um something that stops people from learning having said that there's also the idea that that it needs to be a meaningful contribution so you know someone can't say i can't afford it but i'm also going to fiji for a holiday next week you know so it's all about prioritizing where you put your money like if if you have a lot of money but you don't have enough money to meditate then that's your priority and you've chosen a holiday over, you know, all the benefits that um, you could get out of meditation and that's fine. But if you actually don't have the money, then would still find a way, right? So that's number one. Uh, number two, are there other ways to um, reach a, a state of no mantra, no thought or, you know, experience bliss? Yes, absolutely there are. Um, I'm not an expert in any of them. But what I would say is, you know, in the same way that there's many ways to get from L.A. to New York, um, as far as I know, and, you know, I've definitely done a lot of research into it, Vedic meditation is the quickest way to get there. So, you know, 20 minutes twice a day and there's milestones that are almost irrefutable that will come if you continue with the practice. And, you know, in other traditions and other practices, those milestones will also be met. But from my understanding and from my experience and from my, you know, research, those milestones take longer and are harder to achieve. So, yeah. If you want to get the jet plane to New York, learn Vedic meditation. If you want to work there, <laughs> there's other ways. Agreed. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful. I've been, I've been granted 
access to this practice and anyone who is on the fence uh just if if you're if you're still not convinced by this podcast we have podcasts with other vedic meditation teachers including my own that can um further uh entice you also tom Knoll's podcast as well which is uh matt's and my teacher blazes meditation teacher who is also a disciple of maharishi mahesh yogi i believe um indeed so unfortunately we are out of time i have so many other questions for you but we're gonna have to wrap things up so if people want to follow you or learn more about your work what's the best way for them to do that um well i have a website matt hanley excuse me matthanley.com and i have an instagram uh, matt hanley meditation and um, I'm also just launching Malibu Meditation. Um, and obviously, you know, you've had Baron and Blaze on before and, you know, together we've formed the Baseline Happiness Project, which you can also find on Instagram and we have a website, baselinehappiness.com. Um, and, yeah, feel free to reach out. I love, I love answering worthy inquiries so if anyone has questions about anything yeah i'm i'm so passionate about vedic meditation and and happy to talk about it all day so yeah feel free awesome matt's socials will be included in the show notes also don't forget to listen to yolanda be cool and their awesome music and before we ask the the very last question matt i just want to take a moment to recognize you for the journey that you've been on. You've been through a lot of ups and downs in your life, some horrible tragedies that have led you to becoming a Vedic Vedic meditation teacher and wanting to help others expand their consciousness and help out the depression in the music industry and uplift others' lives around you. And I'm very appreciative that I got to meet you and spend time at your house. And I just want to take a moment to recognize you for the amazing work that you've done. Uh, well, Mike, thank you very much for, <coughs> excuse me, um, having me and also for, you know, having the idea of um, a podcast that can help people find something that can help their lives. It's awesome. It's from talking to people like you that, you know, makes this entire thing possible and helps, you know, meet Santi and I. Unfortunately, Santi couldn't be here today, but it really helps us expand our consciousness and gain more insights when we talk to people with uh, the beautiful consciousness such as yourself. So thank you. Uh, thank you. So we have one last question. I feel like I know what the answer is going to be, but we're going to ask it because that's the tradition of this podcast. If you had one piece of advice to give people who are seeking to heal and grow on their spiritual journey, what would it be? <laughs> I mean, obviously learn to meditate. <laughs> But um, learn to meditate because um, you'll do everything else better. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Chasing Presence podcast. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word by telling your family and friends and by sharing it on social media. You can also show us your support by leaving a review. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with us, our contact information is in the show notes. Please send us a message as we'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. As always, thanks again for listening. Stay present and have a great day.